welcome to the Rebuilding Podcast. I am, as always, Jordan. With me on the show tonight, we have Chris. Hey! Uh, at this point, we're reasonably certain that Rachel is dead somewhere, and Sam At least is, she better be. Sam has been hurled into the time vortex like some sort of Patrick Troughton doppelganger, so we are, uh, we're running light tonight, folks, but it's gonna be fast and loose. You know Chris and I, we're, uh, we're charmers, so it's gonna go super well! Jordan, I'm um, neither fast nor loose. Stop spreading ill rumors about me around town. Like old, old timey rumors about your, uh, your <laughs> loose morals. Yes, my loose morals. The only, the only type of rumors I can figure out to spread about you are like 18th century uh, insults. <laughs> that Chris is a scallywag. <laughs> um, yeah. So hopefully you guys will stick with us. Tonight on the show, what we're going to do is a bit of a Valentine's Day episode, um, because, you know, we pretend that we have lives, we're not doing this on actual Valentine's Day. However, um, Valentine's Day was in the recent past, and so we want to talk a little bit about uh, some romance tonight, uh, a little bit about the way that the Will They, Won't They has developed on television in the last couple of years, some interesting things we think have changed about that. Um, and then this is, I think, slightly less romantic, but also Valentine's appropriate, Chris and I are going to dig into the second season of House of Cards. We've both seen the whole thing. We will, for those of you who have not, be very spoiler-averse to begin with, so you can listen to the beginning of the segment. As always, I will do my very intricate spoiler warning for when uh, when we start getting into that. So, stick with us at the show. We're going to do a little bit of news, and we're going to do a little bit of a Valentine's Day themery, um, just to show you all how much we care. We hurt you guys. Yeah. It's... Um, it's a lot, guys. It's... Anyway, why don't we go ahead and get to the news? Um, I think the biggest piece of news this week, the one that, that shocked a lot of people and that I think is definitely worth our, our time and recognition on the podcast here, Greta Gerwig was announced as the lead of the spinoff to How I Met Your Mother, How I Met Your... Let's start with the fact that it's a terrible name for a sitcom, but I guess that's really neither here nor there at the moment. Um, she's going to play the main character, she will also be producing, and should the series be picked up past pilot, she will be on the writing staff. Um, so, Chris, why don't we start with, what did you think, what do you think about this? Um, it, it's definitely, Greta Gerwig is definitely somebody who I like a lot from the limited, uh, roles I've seen her in. Uh, I think I've only seen a couple of the films she's done. I haven't had a chance to watch Francis Ha yet, although I heard very good things about that. Um... However, NBC, uh, CBS is sort of a place where really talented people who I enjoy seeing in many things kind of go to, to just disappear for a while. And I'm absolutely referring to Mom right now, which is a sitcom <laughs> that took two actresses who I'm very, very fond of and put them in a half hour of television that I refuse to watch. I just can't stand. I tried watching the first couple. I just couldn't do it. It's not and... even just, just Allison Janney and Al on a Ferris, though, like the entire cast of that show is people I like and would like to see doing things. Oh yeah, it's it's a phenomenal cast, and it's just sort of like locked them in this like horrible little limbo where they're like unaccessible for the next two or three years. Hopefully, it'll be canceled before that. But in the meantime, CBS shows have a tendency to just kind of like build up steam. Uh, uh, Will Arnett is uh, has, has a CBS show that I'm ignoring at the moment. Right, um, like I forget that Will Arnett is on television currently. Yeah, which I don't pay attention to CBS comedies for the most part. Exactly. Like, there's not really much on CBS I enjoy watching, so whenever... But they have, like, a tremendous ability to attract people that I really enjoy watching the work of, 
and it's kind of sad because it I, I feel like oftentimes their um talents are a little above the pay grade of what CBS kind of reaches for, this sort of like very broad kind of comedy, which has which definitely has an appeal. I mean, there's a reason it is one of is the only network that isn't like in serious trouble right now, but at the same time, it's just not something I'm interested in. And so it's hard for me to get excited about Greta Gerwig uh, headlining and possibly like writing for a new show when I know that it's not going to be what I want out of the show. Well, I'm going to paint this in a slightly more positive light, I think, which is a week and a half ago, I would have laughed if you'd asked if I was going to watch How I Met Your Dad. Um, I will never forgive Carter Bays and Craig Thomas for what they did to me on How I Met Your Mother. Um, they've taken years of my life. They've stripped me, you, Sam, and like anyone who's tried to write about that show for our website of their sanity. Uh, <laughs> like, I don't know. They're, they're, they're like uh, on my pop culture dictators list, basically. Like, they're, they're as bad as Hitler and Stalin in my, in my television world. Are you calling? Um, are you calling How I Met Your Mother the North Korea of comedy? Yes, I, that is literally exactly. If you, partner uh, Craig, if you want to put that on the DVD box for the last season, How I Met Your Mother is the North Korea of comedy. Review to be named. Um, and also, okay. like, I think I think the idea of just literally doing the show again, but with a woman this time, is kind of like an abysmal idea. Especially when I know that, like, they didn't have enough ideas to do the show the first time. Um, that being said, now that I know that Emily Spivey, who did uh, Up All Night, a show that had about 15 versions of itself, some of which I really liked, um, and that Greta Gerwig is going to be involved, I'm actually going to at least watch an episode of this show, which was not plausible uh, a week ago. I think, like... Gerwig is one of my favorite young actresses right now. Um, obviously, I loved her in Frances Hall last year, which uh, narrowly missed being on my like top movies list. Very narrowly. I think it was actually the next movie had I done a top 16 instead of a top 15. Uh, but I thought the movie was fantastic. I really liked... She was really good in, in... I mean, she's really good in everything, but she was really good in Tyrone with Love. Um, really good in Damsels in Distress, the newest Whit Stillman movie. And she's had some like pretty interesting stuff she's done in otherwise you know, sort of mainstream, not necessarily great stuff. I thought she was pretty decent in the Arthur remake, and, like, she played um, the token best friend in No Strings Attached very well, I thought. So basically, I, I think she's really fascinating as, as like, uh, more low-key an indie actress and as a writer. She was the co-writer of Frances Ha. Um, but I also think she's shown an ability to kind of class up things that need some classing up. So... I feel like she could do something very good with How I Met Your Dad. I have no problem with the idea of Greta Gerwig doing a sitcom. I know a lot of people seem to be kind of miffed that she's leaving film, which is not necessarily the case when you do a sitcom. See Jason Siegel on How I Met Your Mother. Um, yeah. He's done way more movies while on How I Met Your Mother than he did before. But mostly, like, I have to be a little bit excited about this because, I mean, it's just there's a better project in the world than there was last week. Like, I would not call myself cautiously optimistic about how I met your dad now. Um, I would still say I am pretty much outwardly pessimistic about the show, but it was it's a lot more interesting now, almost infinitely more interesting now than it was seven days ago. So that's something for me. Um, I guess before we move on, Chris, will you watch How I Met Your Dad? If so, for how long? And if so, uh, and in addition to if so, what human rights violations do you think you'll be committing if you do so? <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, I'll probably at least give it a look. As I said, I think I'm still a little bit more pessimistic than you are. Um, just because I, how, how I Met Your Mother for me was always sort of like going against the grain of sort of like the CBS house style in terms of sitcoms. But, you know, it, it, you're right. There are like a lot of talented people behind this. So I think it at least merits a look. Um, my problem with it is not so much the retread of the formula just because um there there's always a potential like the second time around to maybe learn from some of the mistakes and when you really get down to it how i met your mother was just a hanging out show um like the 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 friend group growing up is like a a trope that will be returned to time and time again there's there's a timeless quality to it it's never really gonna go away always grow up yeah, people always grow up, and they do so with friends until, you Sometimes. know, singularity happens. <laughs> um, but, so, that, but, again, it, it's, we don't have, like, a very strong reason to be optimistic at this point. But I think it's interesting. If nothing else, it's interesting, and as you said, it's more interesting now than it was uh, a week ago when it was basically one of my favorite running gags in pop culture that there was going to be a spinoff of How I Met Your Mother called How I Met Your Father, which is apparently now How I Met Your Dad, yeah. which I sounds... Your a good name for the spinoff. How I Met Your Dad... I mean, a good name for a spinoff as obvious names for spinoffs go. How I Met Your Dad, yeah. just like, it does not roll off the tongue. Yeah, also, How I Met Your Dad sounds like date, like, stumbles into that single dad's house drunk and starts talking to the kids. I also just think about, like, the, the acronym for it as I was typing when I was re- doing the rundown for the show is H-I-M-Y-D, which, like, first of all, you're not going to be able to say, like, him, but second of all, when I get to the end of that and it's H-I-M-Y-D, I do not think dad. Yeah. <laughs> like... When I was writing that, I was like, oh, wow. that's an unfortunate thing that I'm going to think about whenever I think about this show from now on. Uh, so I would say that the title uh, is a mistake already, but you never know. They might change the title before it gets a series. Um, that would be nice. They could change everything about this. I'd actually, I'd kind of like it if Greta Gerwig joined the show and they completely rewrote it. It was a new premise. It was a new everything. And they opened the first episode by executing Carter and Craig. <laughs> she just surreptitiously takes it over from the inside. Yeah. She it's it's a it's a Trojan horse situation. She's like, sure, I'll play your lead, and then all of a sudden we get a a Greta Gerwig sitcom on CBS, which would, I mean, probably be fascinating and immediately canceled, especially if yes. she murdered two people on the air in the first episode, <laughs> which would imply this show's live. This is all okay. We've got off the rails a little bit. Why don't we move on? <laughs> We always went off the rails. Yeah, this show is a is a barely contained uh, on the rails. Like rails are are not even really guidelines at this point. Um, so the other there are only two news stories I really feel like talking about this week that I could find anyway. So you guys should let us know if we miss anything major. Um, the other one I think is probably about at the same level of interesting to me, but um, just sort of a ha! Huh, this is a thing that's happening. Uh, which is Bill Lawrence is planning to mount a musical version of Scrubs on Broadway, uh, which he hopes to open in 2017. So far, all we know about it is that Zach Braff will be involved behind the scenes as a producer. Um, They will be trying to get a cast of Broadway people as opposed to the show's cast. And Lawrence has said his current idea is to do sort of a a hybrid uh, of several plots from throughout the series, but the two he, he mentioned in the brief piece that I saw were uh, the plot of the pilot and the plot of uh, My Old Lady, which is, uh, of course, the famous episode where Mrs. Lanningham dies. Um, and one of my favorite episodes of the show. So, I don't know how I feel about a Scrubs musical. 
I don't know how I feel about uh, the likelihood of this actually ending up happening because it's still early in the process. But um, I guess that's interesting. And like, if they're going to do a musical, do good episodes, which that is one. Um, Chris, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I I don't really understand why it's happening, but at the same time, it, it's. I, I like the idea of it. I, I don't know. I, I, it's just kind of like really struck me off guard. It's like, like Scrubs is this thing that like, I really feel like I had my fill of Scrubs. Um, and it's, it's interesting in a way that it's coming back in this form. It, 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 if you would, um, I, I think almost when you uh, first told me about this, I, my, my initial inclination was this was just like an offhand joke in like an interview or something, like let alone like a project that, um, both Bill Lawrence and Zach Braff would be like pretty gung ho about. Um, if it's happening, great, sure. Uh, I hope it's good. Uh, it doesn't really, um, really excite me too much. I don't think I'm going to run out and buy a Broadway ticket to go uh, see Scrubs the musical. But at the same time, I'm sure that there are fans uh, who will do that. There's definitely an audience for this out there, and um, good for them for getting more Scrubs. Yeah, I, I guess <laughs> I think that's kind of like. I feel similar. Like, if you're going to adapt a sitcom to the stage, Scrubs is actually a pretty good one, I think, because it, it always had a, a fairly open relationship with musical, uh, both in terms of, like, its, its sort of absurdist, high, campy style, in terms of the fact that the show had a lot of great music in it. And, you know, it did musical numbers a lot with uh, the acapella group with the actual musical episode. So, yeah. like, Scrubs feels musically to me. Doesn't mean that I necessarily want a Scrubs musical. But, like you said, it probably won't affect my life at all, because unless it gets, like, film reviews, um, I'm probably not, like, there are so many musicals that I would rather see if I'm going to go see a musical than this abstract musical. Like, it could be really good, and then I would want to go see it. But my initial reaction is, huh, okay. Um, and I guess almost, so similar to Greta Gerwig, although I feel like people are blowing that up a little bit, I like Bill Lawrence as a television creator. Um, I would hope that doing Scrubs the Musical would not take him away from that, or at least would not take him away from it for very long. Um, if it does, I feel like whatever the Scrubs Musical ends up being, unless it is just knock the doors off phenomenal, will be less satisfying than it would be to see a new Bill Lawrence show on the air in the next couple of years. Yeah, um, I, I definitely agree about that. I, it, it just seems like uh, television is a medium he's very confident and he's definitely got a lot of ideas and he always like creates a very enjoyable um atmosphere with whatever project he's working on i think cougar town uh is tremendously successful in spite of the perceptions that the show immediately uh brings to mind it's it's just a great show that fights like a horrible battle against like the people whose first inclination is to not want to watch it um, so for him going and like focusing on reaching a much more niche audience is just kind of a little weird and possibly disappointing just because like he, as you said, could be doing more television instead. But I mean, at the same time, maybe he just needs to creatively recharge. Maybe this is just what he really wants to do right now. Maybe he just kind of wants to shift gears and focus on doing a big, big Broadway musical. It, it, it just, I, I don't know. It, just for me, it's like every once in a while, Broadway does something that really makes me scratch my head and go, huh. And this is definitely one of those times. And it's like, it, it, it very much makes me think back to like Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. I'm just like, this is really weird. I don't know why this is happening, but people are going to go do this. Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark is a weirder title for something. Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark is the weirdest title for everything ever. 
And it's and also started my trend of telling all roommates that I've ever had to turn off the dark whenever I want to turn it on. Um, but actually, I think this this kind of ties our news stories together in a way that I did not intend. Um, but we can maybe talk about for a minute, which is I don't know. Like I feel like the reaction that I had to the Bill Lawrence story, less so, but a little bit to the Gerwig story, and the reaction a lot of people are having to the Gerwig story is like this person is going away from doing the thing that I want them to do. And I think we've sort of, we've talked about, like, the idea of artistic responsibility before on the show, but I don't think we've ever talked about it in this form. So, like, I don't know, like, obviously I don't think we have a right to be like, Greta Gerwig, you can't do television. Um, Bill Lawrence, you can't do a musical. Like, that's that would be insane. <laughs> um, but I do think uh, it's interesting that we seem to have, like, my initial inclination on both of them is like, well, this is like a, a medium change. Like, what's going on there? Um, and I think we, we live in, a, in an era where that's increasingly common, and I, I think it's almost uniformly been a positive thing. So I wonder why that's still our inclination. I think it's just a natural, um, as much as we say as like pop culture consumers that we want change, we want different things, we want new ideas, new concepts and whatnot, I think there's always a little bit of an inclination to like, Fearing the unknown, like what's the Bill Lawrence gap going to look like in the television landscape uh, after Francis? Very well, small. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> was... you, you know what I'm saying, though. You, yeah, I, you know, um, I know exactly. It, it, it's just like this inclination of like, where is my Bill Lawrence fix going to come from? If I'm not going to get it from TV, like, what is there going to be a next project? Was this the last Bill Lawrence project I'm going to see? Um, I, I think that's just kind of like the initial reaction there. And it's, it's, what's important to remember is like we are. I, I think absolutely living in a golden age of pop culture, movies and TV-wise. I mean, we just had this incredible season of uh, 2013 movies, of which I'm now still only just scratching the surface of catching up on after a year that really didn't seem like it was a great year for movies. I was just kind of going back and looking at so many great things that came out. And with television, I'm barely keeping up anymore. Like, I've got so many different things I'm trying to catch up on right now. So I, I think it's important to remember that while the... the um, the steadfast creators that we love, uh, it, it's comfortable to kind of like see them kind of doing what we expect them to do over and over and over again. There's there's always going to be an opportunity for something else to come in and fill that void in a different way. And maybe for these creators that you come to love to get a chance to experiment and surprise and uh, delight you in new ways that you didn't think that you would see from them. Yeah. I think basically this is a good thing, even if neither of the projects ends up being good. Um, and I also think that we are not losing Bill Lawrence from television, nor are we losing Greta Gerwig from film. Um, and I'm, I'm not even sure that's the way to think about it. But that's probably a, a thing we could turn into an entire segment. For now, we've gone long on the news. So why don't we uh, turn things over to you, Chris, and let's talk a little bit about uh, a new trend in television romance that uh, we've been meaning to talk about for a while. Yeah, so I, I, I think we really got me thinking about this the other day was um this the current what i feel like and feel free to disagree with me on this jordan is a is a very much a feeling of directionless in the current season of new girl and the idea that the um the uh driving force of the show at least until recently had been jessica day's uh sort of like romantic journey and like to an extent the will they or won't they between her and nick and ever since the two have gotten together we've gotten some enjoyable stories out of it but i kind of feel like the show has been to an extent sort of like treading water since then 
And it got me thinking that like a lot of other shows have been doing this recently. Um, ever since you had sort of the, um, I, I, I try to think about like where the true start of this would be. Yeah, I guess you could say maybe the idea of Jim and Pam in season three of The Office, or I think the more um, prevalent one would probably be um, April and Andy on season three of Parks and Recreation in a uh, really very much a departure from what you would expect for a uh, television romance. Uh, you just had like, these two characters who had just started a relationship get married after like four or five episodes. I, I forget, but it was really fast into like their relationship. It was unexpected, and um, it, it just kind of brought around this, like, focus to this new trend of you don't really see the Sam and Diane-type relationship anymore. If there's a romantic tension between leads in the series, I think it's more often than not that they're going to get together within a season, maybe a season and a half from when that tension is really introduced. And while it's it's it was very groundbreaking at first, I think... I think we've now kind of entered into a time where we're starting to see the negative effects of this, or at least I'm starting to perceive them. Um, I, I I feel like it really kind of takes away a huge well of stories from a lot of different shows. But at the same time, there's like, there's definitely a balance to be had. And I think we'll talk about that a lot with a big culprit that we've already talked about earlier in the episode. How much your mother? But Wait, um <laughs> But I, I, it just seems to be like, I, I can't really think of a lot of instances where the will they or won't they is being used right now. And uh, if it is, the trend is more towards just get them together fast. And there's uh, one show in specifically I will talk about in a minute, but I just wanted to give your, get your impressions on my initial thoughts, Jordan, and see if you agree or disagree with some of the things I'm bringing up and how you feel about them. I would say I generally agree. Um... I guess I'll, I'll sort of try to map onto the way that you approached it, which one thing, like, I'll agree with you that New Girl feels kind of directionless right now. I actually don't think it's a Nick and Jess problem. Um, I feel like that's kind of the conventional wisdom on the season is that, like, or maybe even not the conventional wisdom. I think I've seen a bit of a split. I feel like some people think that Nick and Jess getting together robbed the show of its big drive because the best run of episodes was when the big question, like, the question was out there whether Nick and Jess would get together. Um, and I agree that, like, the last, the last half of last season when they were dealing with that question was the best the show's been so far. But I, I haven't really had a problem with too many of the Nick and Jess storylines. My biggest problems with New Girl have been the other things. And I feel like I feel like the show didn't need to rack focus away from Nick and Jess as much as it's tried to. And when it racked focus, it didn't know where to go. So you've had things like Schmidt dating two women for too long and make it made him just look like a bad person, which was not fun for anyone. And Winston being like a completely insane person far beyond the bounds of what you could ever imagine and then the show sort of just flailing to figure out what to do with with coach and cc so i think one thing we could talk about with how new girls done it is like just because they the will they want they is over doesn't mean that you have to rack the show away but i also don't think that new girl is, a, is necessarily a bad example of the will they won't they working out uh, when they get together at least not yet um because i haven't had problems with many uh you know i guess i've had problems with some but not many of the nick and jeff storylines parks and rec actually it's interesting that you bring that one up because when April and Andy got together really quick on that show, I thought it was amazing. It was, I mean, it's one of my favorite episodes of the series to this day. And it's a, it's a decision that I don't think has gone wrong on the show. I think like they've never had any problem generating April and Andy stories since April and Andy got married. And I would say they're actually one of the better examples of a couple on television that you don't lose all interest in once they're together. 
However, when you mentioned that, I started to think and I realized that I'm not sure the same is true of Ben and Leslie. Um, the show did a similar thing with Ben and Leslie where it got them together uh, earlier than we kind of expected. It sort of, it didn't really repeat the, uh, the April Andy and they had a little bit more Will They Won't They, but it got them together pretty fast. And I do think that that's robbed the show of something because I feel like the last season or so of Parks and Rec, um, and the show's been trying to course correct on that a little bit and I think it hasn't been particularly successful, but the last season or so of Parks and Rec has basically been like, well, everyone has all of the things they want now, so what do we do? And, like, it's still a funny show that I enjoy, but it's felt like it's completely lost its drive. And part of that, I don't think most of that, but I think part of that might be the way they handled uh, the Ben and Leslie Will They Won't They. And I guess sort of every other Will They Won't They since then, because Parks and Rec has actually sort of hit the reset button and, and replayed the April Andy situation a lot with Ron's marriage and sort of a little bit the way that uh, Chris and Anne got together, although I think that one actually played out over a couple seasons and worked... I don't know if it works better, but uh, it felt more like a traditional Will They Won't They. Um, so I've got a couple examples of, of different takes on the Will They Won't They um, and ones that I think are being more traditional. But first, I want to kick it back to you. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Parks and Rec because that was definitely the, one of the ones I was thinking about. And I really agree with you that the um, like taking away the tension between Ben and Leslie has also kind of left that show with a similar rudderless quality because it's it's never really been a show that... It's always been a very much a character first kind of show, and when the, like the macro developments of what's going on in Pawnee and the community and the local government there is always like a well that can drive it back on, but it, it's never nearly as interesting as the interpersonal dynamics between these characters and this like group of people that you've come to really love and care about. And it was a really fun show. Uh, like I mean, it still is a very fun show, but like when you had like that sort of tension between Leslie and Ben, and when you had the the beginnings of the April and Andy relationship. Like, it, some of the best episodes were when they would all go out and, like, get drunk together at the uh, the Snake Hole Lounge, and you would see what would happen. Like, um... But now you're entering into a situation where, um... Like you said, pretty much almost everybody on the show has what they want. I mean, ostensibly, there's really only one single character left on the show, which is Tom Haverford. Um, I mean, you can argue that Donna is single also but like that's a character who's perpetually single and works much better in the background i don't think we're ever going to see a will they won't they with donna at any time unless donna and um, tom finally get together oh god yes please <laughs> let that happen um but i it, and it i i think it does sort of take away a little bit of the um i, I mean it, it, it's a it's definitely like a tough balance to strike because on the one hand it's like it, it, it's a very recognizable story it, it's not even I, I would call it a trope it's it's not the most original element you can bring into a television show but at the same time i feel like it's a very satisfying one because it's like it is um there there's something like when you have like two characters in the show with a romantic connection of some sort if they're not together there's something inherently fun to the question of are they going to get together? Like, what's going to happen? Like, is this going to be where they get together? Like, is somebody going to make a move that's going to advance this? There's something, there, there's, there's an inherent optimism there and hopefulness there. But, re like, reflect that against, like, characters, when you put them in a relationship, too often their plots become, are they going to overcome this difficulty? And the inherent question there becomes, I think, 
is are these characters going to fall apart because of this? Which is definitely not as fun a concept to have at the core of a sitcom and episodes of sitcom. I'm not saying like that all of the um, couple subplots and storylines kind of go in that direction, but that I think there's a tendency that that kind of becomes the focus. And as since there's something much less um, happy and fun at the core of it when you have um, when you're looking at it from that kind of angle. So I want to I want to jump back in and I, and I don't know I don't I wouldn't call this a defensive Parks and Rec, but I do think there's something else going on other than the will they want they's being gone, which is just old sitcom syndrome. Like at this point, the show's been on uh, long enough that it's sort of run through all the stories that you could possibly conceive for it, you know. And part of part of a sitcom that ages means the characters start to pair off and settle down, and you end up like, you know what? They're not all going out and getting drunk at the Snake Hole Lounge anymore because they're like married and having children at this point and like that's a fair thing to uh to tell stories about on a show and i actually think there are good shows that are about those stories although they're more difficult to do i think but that's just like it's not necessarily the same stories that parks and rec used to be able to tell so i think that's part of it and that's sort of off topic but um i do think that that uh that just old sitcom syndrome has something to do with that i wanted to bring up um what i think is a different and one of my favorite will they want these in the last couple of years and i think it does something different and I also think it's kind of fallen apart for different reasons. So while we're talking about changes in the will they, won't they, I want to talk about community real quick. Um, okay. Because community started off as a will they, won't they between Britta and Jeff. And that has sort of transformed into one of my favorite character pairings on television uh, for the ways that it's completely anti-will they, won't they in a lot of fun ways. But very quickly in community's early run, you, you got introduced to the will they, won't they between Jeff and Annie, which I think... One of the things I've liked about, uh, and I think this is, it's not, I'm not willing to call it a trend quite yet, but it's something I'm seeing more, and, and another example I'll bring up in a minute, in shows recently is the willingness to rack focus um, between who you think the will they what they're supposed to be and two actors who have a lot of chemistry. Uh, it's clear that at the beginning of Community, Britta was the one that Jeff was supposed to try to become a better person for, and eventually that mantle was pretty much entirely usurped by Annie. Um, and I think in the first season and a half, two seasons of that sh of Community, that worked really well, and I think it was a great story driver. Uh, I think Community has actually fallen into the almost the opposite problem, which is uh, it's it's afraid to pull the trigger on these two. It's not sure what it would look like with those two in a relationship, and it's like at first I think it had a lot of really good reasons why they shouldn't be in a relationship, but at this point it's just sort of repeating those reasons on a very narrow loop, so that whenever the question of Jeff and Annie comes up, it's like no, these are the reasons why they can't be together. Uh, but they still have sexual tension, and that story beat hasn't worked for me in two and a half, three seasons, even though I'm, like, I'm a big fan of the pairing in the entire history of the show. Um, what do you think about, uh, the, I guess, both the rack focus that that show pulled off as a more general matter, and I guess specifically in terms of community? Um, I, I definitely think it's always better to follow the story that's there than the story you preconceive. I think um, that the 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 shift from Jeff and Britta to Jeff and Annie is one of the things that made me really love Community and stand out in the sense that it was a show that was going to be a little unconventional. It wasn't going to follow the path it had kind of like set itself on. Um, I agree with you that I would like to see the romantic pairings played up a little bit more in Community. Um, it, like because the tendency there is almost that they 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 seem to ignore it for the most part. Like I mean, it's a reference here and there, and they kind of like kind of dance around it from time to time but it's it's weirdly a show that kind of really ignores romantic relationships 
uh, for a show like set in like a college scenario. I know it's like not like a traditional college sort of environment, but it's like you'd think that that aspect of people's lives, which is a fairly huge aspect of people's lives, would be more of a focus in the show, where rarely does it ever really come to the forefront. And when it does, um, it's usually uh, very much sort of left left up in the air. I think the biggest like community ever got close to that was the episode the um the first paintball episode where we actually did see Jeff and uh Britta actually sleep together. Um so community is a, a weird example in that it it almost it, there are will they or won't they's on the show, but it's almost never a focus of the show. It's it's always kind of like a very secondary element. Um to allow the going. I actually, I actually feel like um, now that you mentioned that, that it's it's um, almost more realistic that way though, because I feel like the show is about a group of friends, and while while their dating lives would occasionally come up and do occasionally come up in the show, it's like it's mostly a background issue. And you know, we had a situation in season three of the show where Jeff and Brett are sleeping together for a long time, but it doesn't really affect the uh, the group dynamic at all, and so it's not really a story focus. Um, I think. That's actually something that I think is interesting and kind of works most of the time about community. I just think that sometimes it forgets that's what it's doing or, you know, it's doing that accidentally. (laughs) Yes, I I will agree with that to an extent, but it's just almost a little weird that, like, because, like, even among a group of friends, you'll kind of see, like, a significant other, like, kind of, like, kill in or out of the group for sometimes. But, like, I'll even go you one further and say that, like, when two members of, like, a friend group decide, like, to try a relationship, it, it does fundamentally, like, affect the chemistry of the group. And I think they hinted at that a little bit with some of the um, Jeff and British stuff, but mostly only after it had ended. Like, it never really um, was an issue while it was going on. It just was something that was kind of, like, be- came out after the fact and, like, had an effect on characters' reactions that reactions afterwards. But we've never really seen community deal with an ongoing relationship, relationship in a significant way, except for, you know, the gas leak here, as we're now calling it. <laughs> uh which is great by yeah. the way i actually you're you're talking about um how relationship statuses affect a friend group reminded me of another one that i sure. wanted to discuss uh which is happy endings um a show that i think actually sort of tried to rack focus away from a central role they want they and then moved back and like when they tried to do the dave penny thing for a little while that didn't work at all but like they ended up making their central will they won't they work by kind of making it a supporting will they won't they which brings me into the final thing I wanted to discuss. Um, we talked about how we loved when April and Andy's Will They Won't They was kind of one and done. Uh, we talked about how it didn't work so well with Leslie and Ben. And I think like we, we've been sort of moving back and forth between talking about Will They Won't They's that are the main characters on the show and Will They Won't They's that are supporting characters. Um, I wonder if you think one works better than another in either format or just in general. Uh, I definitely think that the supporting characters can work better, but I, I think it's just always an important element to keep in the show in some way. And I think it's easier to put the supporting characters together because although we may love these characters, we care a little bit less about them. And so if their storylines are essentially, if their, their major arc is essentially done, then there still can be enjoyable in that supporting role. Um, like, like there, there's less of there's less momentum to them. They don't drive the show in a way that the main characters do. And so, when you have a situation where a show is ostensibly about um, a romantic, uh, in, 
is about like an ongoing romance or like like someone's romantic life is sort of like the driving force of the narrative which oftentimes for a comedy sitcom is it's like you can't have a sitcom like uh rested development which is much more like plot oriented like there were never there was like romances would come and go on that show but that was never really the driving force behind it but like the show that's about a friend group or like the young something group like shows like new girl um how i met your mother uh the mindy project these are shows that are like centrally driven by um this idea of a romantic search um and you you i guess you could make the argument that that's not what new girl needed to be about but i think it really did become about that um early on in its life so i think when you have ostensibly the main character kind of end that search kind of find that someone that you the audience wants them to be with and that they have this amazing chemistry work with um whether this was somebody from the existing cast or somebody was brought in there's kind of this um disappointment in that like there is no more mystery left of the show even though that in the back of our minds we kind of know how these stories end we know that the satisfying end of the rom-com is that the main characters get together and we really haven't seen like a sam and diane in modern um television that i can really point to offhand it's like that couple that you thought was gonna get together but just didn't i guess maybe jeff and britta might be an example of that but that was like kind of killed so early in its stages that i don't think you can really make the um similar uh the comparison well, i mean we, we did a list several years ago now on the site of our favorite world they want days and sam and diane was number one in a walk-off in part i think because they didn't get together and that was so fascinating yeah. but mostly i think because that show, that show patented the world I won't day in terms of like only now in the last couple of years, and that's actually why we discussed this in the first place. I think have we seen uh, patterns that really diverge from the the characters are interested in each other, they get together at the end of season two, season three is about them being together, then they break up, then there's like they almost marry someone up. Like this is a very like you can almost trace this pattern across any show that does a world I won't day in maybe the twenty years after uh, Cheers ends. Um, well, the twenty years after Sam and Diane part portion of cheers i guess i should say so i think that's uh i mean that is the quintessential world they won't they and i don't think it's ever been topped yeah but but, but i think i think you're very much right when as a reaction to sam and diane we sort of got the ross and rachel which i think more became the the standard mold for what to expect from a world they won't they for the longest time and now i think it's more of the jim and pam is the model that seems to be what is the uh the norm yeah, there, I think there are these sort of uh, epochs, uh, epochal moments in in television world they want things that everything sort of gets shaped a little while, which is interesting. But I guess we should probably move on. Um, I, I we'll do a few concluding thoughts. One of which I want to throw out there is that I think you're right. I think the problem that a lot of shows have is if the search for romance is a, is one of the drives, taking that away is worrisome. I. I'm not sure, like, I think of New Girl Show sort of in the mold of Cooper Town, which has had no problem pairing off its characters um, and continuing to have, but also, you know, I think Cooper Town and New Girl, to a certain extent, can be basically plotless because we like the characters in their own. Um, a show like How I Met Your Mother, for example, was terrified of the idea of pairing off, even though it got harder to keep him single because it wasn't sure it would have a story after that. And, you know, it probably wasn't wrong about that, even though I think it was wrong about a lot of things, and I actually think it should have paired Ted off at some point. If it was. Um, yeah, and I think one of the reasons that Dave and Alex worked on Happy Endings is because 
at the beginning of the show, they were the main characters. But by the time they got back together, their relationship was very much a supporting plotline on the show. Yeah, but don't forget, I mean, the, the very last beat we had of the Dave-Alex relationship was the inclination to end the relationship, thus, like, freeing up more characters to be single within the ensemble. Yeah. Um, and also, like, what's interesting is I wasn't interested at all in the Dave and Alex uh, relationship when it was the focus of the show in season yeah. one. But by the time they were breaking up at the end of season three, it was like, no, I like them together. Yeah. No, it... So it's almost like that show found a satisfying will they, won't they by um, shunting it to the side a little yeah. bit. I, well, I think, I think that's like, not just a will they, won't they that was made satisfying, but a whole number of things that was made satisfying with those characters in shunting them to the side. But that's in itself an aside. Uh, my closing thought is I was going to say the show that really... Uh, kicked off this um, idea for me, in addition to New Girl, was the, um, I guess you can call it, mid-season break of the Mindy Project, wherein Jordan Covier is very close, if you don't want this spoiled for you, but uh, I would just like to talk about, on air for a moment, the idea that at the end of that episode, um, the very much sort of background slow burn that was um, between uh, Mindy and uh, co-worker Dan Castellano was kind of like crossed over into more real uh, territory where the closing image of the episode is them finally like sharing a kiss on this plane ride that they're on, um, which is I, I guess sort of like troublesome just because it, it's again it's like the scenario where you have like a lot of chemistry between the two leads of the show, um, chemistry that was I definitely planned on, but like at the same time just like dynamite in the sort of scenes that they were getting out of these two and. Again, it's a little bit more of a concerning premise because, like, the idea, the core of the Mindy Project was this whole sort of, like, Mindy Cowling's search for that happily ever after. Well, uh, Mindy Lahiri, the character, uh, search for this happily ever after. And so, like, pulling the trigger, like, really quickly on that show sort of, like, brought me into the idea of maybe we are seeing, like, this whole new trend in the world, they won't they? And I'm not sure it's exactly a positive trend, especially for this show, which is ostensibly set out as a long-form uh, rom-com in TV form. Uh, so it, obviously it's too early to really know what they're planning on doing with this new development. But at the same time, it's like, it's something I hope is just going to be like another wrinkle and they're going to hold off on actually pairing these two off for at least another season or so, just because I think that we haven't exhausted all of the potential of keeping them apart for the moment. So. All right. Well, I think we'll, we'll close her down there. Um, I do think this is a trend worth watching, and I mean, maybe next Valentine's Day we'll we'll weigh in on a couple other shows that we didn't get a chance to talk about, and see if this trend is bearing out in ways that I think it may be on a couple other shows right now that we didn't get a chance to discuss. So, with that, we're going to move on and talk about House of Cards Season 2. I will remind you at this point, we are not going to spoil for the moment, so if you have not watched House of Cards Season 2 yet, Chris and I are going to do some general discussion of it. And when we move into spoilers, I will be very sure to make uh, to give you your warning so you can jump off the podcast, uh, and you know we'll see you next week. But for now, Chris, without spoiling anything, uh, general thoughts on House of Cards season two. Uh, the the first general thought I kind of like to bring up has really nothing to do with the plot of House of Cards whatsoever, but uh, the idea behind how I feel that the uh, Netflix show model has sort of really changed since the last big one that came out. I would. The last big one, Orange is the New Black, or okay. So the last, the last big release was Orange is the New Black, and it, like the house of the the Netflix sort of drop, I think sort of reinvigorated this idea of 
the water cooler show. I mean, there are obviously others that I think you could point to, like Breaking Bad, The Walking Dead. But like at the same time, like I think every time that there's a Netflix drop, it becomes this huge topic of conversation and people who like enjoy these kinds of things and like to keep up on pop culture and immerse themselves in these shows. But I, this time around, I almost kind of felt a very aggressive pressure to just get through the whole thing as fast as I could. Like, I didn't feel like I could take any time with it. I didn't feel like I could parse it out over a week because I didn't think that there was any chance that I could walk through the thing unspoiled if I didn't do that. It seems like the, the marathoning of Netflix shows, which was this very sort of different and fun way of consuming TV models when a TV when model which kind of sprung up around um, like these old shows that were being put on Netflix and now the new Netflix originals, uh, which was very fun at first, is now taking on a little bit more, at least from my perspective, a little bit more of a you have to get through this as soon as it's out or you're going to, yeah, exactly. It's like, like just get weighed into it, swing in and hope you get through it before you have to actually talk about it with somebody because chances are everybody's going to have finished it within the shortest amount of time possible of it actually hitting the air. Um, which again, I found really fun at first, but I was kind of just struck at this time around. Just like, it seemed much more like something I had to do. Like, I was always going to do it this way, but I definitely felt more pressure to get it done this time around than I did any other time watching a uh, Netflix, big Netflix release. So I think there are two sides to that. Um, I think the good thing is, as you mentioned, the idea of it being a water cooler show, which I feel like in the age of TiVo is hard to do. Like, yes, everyone watched Breaking Bad live um, for the most part. Obviously, there were exceptions even to that. But I feel like for the most part now, it's hard to it's hard to know if someone's even seen the TV show the day after it airs, and it gets more difficult to discuss television, and it, it gets more difficult to think of TVs as a cultural event. I think we've even seen this happening with the Olympics, where like now you can stream any event at any time, and no one's really watching the the NBC you know uh, Olympic coverage together anymore. Like I I've been watching it uh, with a couple friends because that's how I feel like the Olympics are generally watched. But I don't feel like there's a there's a culture around that the way there used to be because I feel like people aren't watching TV that way anymore. Um, and I think a positive of Netflix, the Netflix releases, is for like a week, two weeks, maybe a month, like it's a show that we're all talking about because like everyone's trying to watch it at the same time. Um, and even like even you know for example, you haven't seen all of Hannibal yet. Um, not to bag on you for that, which you totally should finish watching Hannibal. But like. It used to be if you didn't watch the show when it was on, you didn't watch the show unless it came out on DVD, you know, a year or so later. Now it's like you can catch up on the internet later and, you know, there are streaming sites. It just, there's less pressure, I think, generally to watch a show as it airs. And I feel like it might not be a bad thing that Netflix brings that back a little bit. On the other side, I do think... On the other side, you're losing a weekend, basically. <laughs> well, I, think, I think it's bad to think of it as a bloodshed, yeah. which I, and I think a lot of people do, like... I, uh, I sat down and watched the entire thing in one sitting this weekend uh, because a lot of my friends are, were sort of like, we got to get through it really quick and we got to get through it before other people get through it, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And I'm like, that's never how I want to think about TV. I don't want it to feel like homework. I don't want it to feel like a race. Um, and, you know, or I didn't watch Orange is the New Black for three or four months after it came out uh, in part because I just, like, everyone told me it was addictive. I was going to have to marathon it and I didn't have time during that period to sit down and watch 13 episodes of television. But in part because um, I didn't want to feel the, like, finish it now pressure. And so I sort of just 
screened out Orange is the New Black talk from my life, like just ignored all, all of the noise that was going on around it, and let it die down and then experience the show in my own way in my own time. And um, I really enjoyed that about it. Like I thought, first of all, I think Orange is the New Black is, is a great show either way. Um, but like I think that that sort of was a good way to experience it too. And it's something that I don't want people to lose because they feel bullied into watching the shows right when they come out. Um, but I guess, yeah. So general thoughts, cool. What about House of Cards season two specifically? Uh, specifically, I would have to say that I feel pretty much exactly the same about the season as I did about last season. Um, I definitely don't really give into the hype as much as I know a lot of people who enjoy the show do. I enjoy watching it while I'm in the run of episodes, but more in a way of it's just like, it's just really good mood pieces that I like to watch. I, I like to, I like the atmosphere that the show creates. I think it does a really good job at saying like this very, um, like dark sort of, um, drawly Washington DC where everybody's just, just moving in the, each other's circles and like sharks just like on the prowl. And it, it, the show definitely has a very fun feel to it, but at the same time, that's really what I think is the majority of what's there. I don't really see a whole lot of real depth to the show or a lot to really love or sink your teeth into at the end of the day. I think it's, I think it's fun to have on. I think it's fun to just see all the different surprises and where, um, all, all the different uh, developments and who's going to be backstabbing who and like just how far Frank is going to rise and what he's going to do to make that happen. But at the end of the day, it's not a favorite show of mine. It's not something I will point to as great television. I just find it to be something that's enjoyable of the moment, but after but also deeply flawed. One of the reasons that I uh, I wanted to watch it all in one sitting, like I did, is because. I didn't do that last year, and it, like it didn't cause any problems for me or anything. But as I as I was approaching this, I I wasn't all that excited for House of Cards season two, and so it was sort of like I almost feared if I didn't watch it all in one sitting, I would just kind of like let it fall off my radar and never finish it. Yeah. Um, and I like having seen the entire season. This, I'm not gonna spoil anything, obviously, but I think I think that's basically still how I feel. Like. I think it's a show that I'm willing to spend roughly one day a year on, but if I didn't finish it all on uh, Saturday, which is when I watched it, I probably would have let the episodes stack up in my Netflix queue for a very long time before I cared to finish them. I think um, we talk a lot, of, a lot about House of Cards being sort of this, this smoke show that thinks it's a lot better than it is, and that definitely didn't go away in season two. I think this is a show that, that thinks it is like a big, important piece of television. And that isn't bad in any way, shape, or form in my mind. Like, it's basically a, a, a show that is about the lowest common denominator of political cynicism and nothing else. Like, there's no real substance to the plot. There's no real substance to the characters. And there's no real thematic weight to anything that happens. Like, I don't even think... People talk about how... Uh, I, I've seen a lot of people say that House of Cards is sort of gravitationally pulled in around Kevin Spacey's performance. Uh, and I think, like, it is a good performance. But it's empty. Like... Kevin Spacey gets to ham a lot, but I don't feel like Frank Underwood is a character. 26 episodes into this show, you know, like, two things about him. And one of them is he likes power, which is kind of a generic fact. Yeah. Um, it, I think, it, it, oh, it's, I do think it is, like, a, it is a great performance uh, in, in a way that it's just, 
it it draws you in. It's like House of Cards for me is I, I tried to articulate this in my initial thoughts. It's just it's a very fun show to watch. Like I I'm completely aware of how um sort of fluffy his extended monologues and aside to the camera are, but that doesn't mean like I don't enjoy them. I mean I I kind of get like sort of a very um it they're fun to watch in a way that like. I, I don't think that there is any kind of, like, self-awareness to the show, but I definitely sort of find, like, humor in the um, almost moments of self-parody that the show dips in from time to time. But, like, at the same time, it's, it's, it's you know, like, I, I'll freely admit that I enjoy to watch Frank just, like, um, drone on for a while in his, like, just rich as honey like accent that he pours on it's 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 a fun bit of uh mood to drop into for a while and it's always very enjoyable to watch even though there's really not that much substance there it's it, it's fun television it's just not substan like very substantial television well one of the things you mentioned that i think is uh is maybe a problem for the show is i actually think there's a lot of humor in kevin spacey's portrayal of frank i feel like it's a situation where like the writers feel like they're writing this big important show and Kevin Spacey kind of feels like it's camp, and he plays it, I think, a little bit like Frank Underwood is is uh, a figure of, of humor to a certain extent. Like, I don't think Kevin Spacey... I think the performance is, is very acty in a way that Kevin Spacey tends to do, but I, I think that he sees some of the fun that he can have with the performance, and that bleeds off the screen to me. All those... I think this season, it dialed back on the mon like fourth wall-breaking monologues a little bit, which I don't necessarily think was a good idea, actually, but it added in those... The dialing back just, you don't think was a good idea? I don't know. I actually, like, one of the things I liked most about season one was those monologues. And, like, I think they went overboard in the first episode of this season uh, with the monologuing and then sort of dialed it back as a result of that. Um, but what we did get as a result uh, of that dialing back was those beautiful moments where Spacey just sort of deadpans at the camera, like Jim on The Office almost, where he's like, this is something ridiculous and terrible that's happening. And that look of his was just fantastic. Um, the other thing that I... Yeah, I... I no, go ahead. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would go as far as to say that that's actually Kevin Spacey embracing the um the, the inherent ridiculousness of the show. I, I, I'm not quite certain I would make that leap. But at the same time, I, I definitely... um I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that that's something he could get away with as often as he seemed to be. Um... So I think I, uh, I, another thing I wanted to talk about before we get into the specifics, which we will in a minute, is how did you feel this compared to season one? Because I'm, I'm seeing like a lot of people talk that I'm talking to think that the show is better, and I'm not sure that that's not true, but I found season two a lot more grating than I found season one. Like, I thought season one was a decent television show that um, I didn't think was particularly great, but... I found a lot of season two annoying and I found a lot of the things that I thought were good in season one got annoying by the time we got through season two. So um, I'm not sure that I think season two is a better is a better season of television than season one, even though I like a lot of the things that it did that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, what did you think? How did you think the show compared? No, I definitely liked season one better than I liked season two. I thought season two had a lot more of a looser structure to it and not in a good way. It almost felt like the show didn't really know where it wanted to go at times, or that it was having a tough balance trying to throw the audience curveballs, and those curveballs actually just coming off more as like a lack of 
uh, a cohesive decision on what direction to take the show in. It just felt like there were a lot of elements in there that never really tied together very neatly or uh, had a tendency to let go of certain things either uh, unceremoniously or because that they're planning to bring them back in season three. It, see, season three had already been greenlit around the time that this was filming, right? Uh, I don't know that it was greenlit when, the, when it was filming, but I imagine that since everyone's agreed to do season three, there were probably discussions and it was probably like, it wasn't announced, but it was probably yeah. known that if they wanted a season three, they'd get one. Yeah. Um, okay. It's interesting you say that because I think maybe one of the bigger problems with season two is that it so very much knew where it was going that it was like filling up a lot of time in between like its initial plot and the resolution of the plot. Like it, it almost felt like the middle two thirds of the season, like maybe like, well, maybe the middle half, I should say. Like the first three or so episodes were setting things up. You, do you mean, were, I'm sorry, do you mean like the major development that happens at the end of the season? Yeah, why don't we you're... move into spoilers now so we can talk okay. about this with, with more clarity. So if you have not seen House of Cards, now's the time to, to jump off. Uh, we're going to pull the gloves off and we're going to talk about spoilers. Um, now that I've given everyone a second if they want to turn the podcast off. Yeah, so my thing is like the structure of the season as a whole, it was it was almost very obvious like, it was obvious from basically the first episode to me, like, season one was about Frank's ascension from uh, Majority Whip to Vice President. Yeah. Season two of the show is his ascension from Vice President to the Presidency. And oh, like, yeah. I saw that that was what was going to happen so quickly, and the show didn't have any other thing to offer me. Like, that was the arc of it. But it was also such a simple and obvious arc that it, like, it wasn't that interesting. <laughs> Yeah, no, like, the trajectory of it definitely was very simple and straightforward, but the way we got there just seemed very circuitous, and especially in how it was treated like some of the um, the smaller players who just kind of, like, wove their way in and out of the plot and sometimes just disappeared at a moment's notice, where you had certain characters like, um, uh, oh, what's her name, Rachel, the, uh, the, the call girl who was involved with Peter Russo, kind of involved in the season for the entirety of it for reasons that I still have trouble with and then characters like christina and um uh lucas who just kind of like dropped out like seemingly very early on the run it it just didn't really seem to have like a lot of rhyme or reason to me like with what it was doing with the supporting players while as you said um frank was on a trajectory that was very much needed to sort of like keep circling around in order to like stall out time until we got to the end of the season i definitely think that it, the show was very obvious about telegraphing where it was going with frank's upward trajectory but in terms of how to actually get there i think the show didn't really quite know how to do that in a fashion that was either linear or um took up the amount of time they needed it to take up yeah, I think so. I think you mentioned this already, but I think season one is tighter in ways that are good in terms of, like, it has the stupid uh, Claire's NGO um, subplot that doesn't go anywhere or mean anything for the entire season. But, like, it also has Frank seeming to play a very central role in having a plot that is more interesting because you don't necessarily know exactly where it's going like you did this season. Um, it had Zoe, who was at least fitfully interesting, I think. And it had Peter Russo. So there were, like, a lot of things going on that I, like, even if I found them kind of annoying, I sort of cared about, like, Zoe. I sort of cared about Peter. I really cared about Peter Russo because I think Corey Stoll was maybe the best part of season one of the show. And, like, Frank, Kevin Spacey's performance was so new, I cared about most of the stuff Frank was doing. So I feel like season one, it was mostly things I cared about and Claire's big plot I didn't really care about. 
This season, I thought Claire's plot was actually fantastic. They figured it, like, they fixed that problem, and then everything else sort of fell apart, where they needed subplots, but they didn't have anything that worked. Like, Lucas's subplot drug on and was terrible, and, like... Yeah. Uh, so now we can talk about the fact that, that uh, Zoe is killed off in episode one, which I think, like, works as a as a twist for one moment, and then you realize that, like... It's it's a twist for a twist's sake. They needed something right. really big to kick off the season with, but I'm not sure it was ostensibly the best choice for the show at that moment because I think I think the show is more interesting with Zoe Barnes in it as sort of a thorn in its side than it is with this out with this big moment of just like oh what's he gonna do next? Because like I remember I was watching that first episode and I was just like wow this has been a pretty quiet debut of House of Cards and almost exactly as I was thinking that was when she got thrown in front of the train. Um, but uh, I really, I, I, I'm not really sure that that was a situation. I feel like that was a situation where a good idea won out over a better idea. Do, 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 does yeah, that make no, sense? I, like, I yeah. Exactly what you're saying. Like, like I, I think it's a good idea to have this big whole shocking moment in the premise, but I'm not sure it's a better show without Zoe Barnes in it. In fact, I think it. I kind of. I think I can definitively say for me, it's a worse show without Zoe Barnes in it because of the remaining interesting characters who aren't Frank and Claire, she was pretty much the only heavyweight left to carry the show in terms of, like, subplots that we would actually care about. And in her stead, we have this revolving door of reporters that never really seem to get anywhere or do anything. Or we have um, Doug Stamper's completely uh, circuitous and repetitive subplot, which I just could not get through quickly enough. Um, so I think a couple things... The first, I think, like, I'd, I think killing Peter Russo was the smart move in season one because, like, it was a really strong, tragic arc, but the show was worse without him. And then two episodes after that, if you go linearly, like, it, there's a season break, but two episodes after that, they kill off another yeah. character that, like, it may, might seem like a good plot idea, but the show is weaker without this character in it. And then, like, in addition to that, they sort of seem to think, like, oh, don't worry, we've got Lucas, who is just has nowhere near the, the magnetic quality of Kate Mara, who doesn't even have necessarily that much magnetic quality to begin with. Like, yeah. I think Kate, Kate Mara was sort of able to hold my interest in Zoe Barnes, even though I think the storyline was kind of weak. Without her, it's just like, the, the storyline lost all interest. Lucas is completely useless, and you watch him for like five or six episodes. Um, and it, they, they keep do, doing these misdirects with like, who's going to pick up the, the baton from Lucas? Like, at first you think it's going to be um the his uh his former editor i forget the name of that character yeah. uh you think it's gonna be that character then you think it's gonna be the um uh the, i can't remember any of these characters names uh the woman the woman who was um zoe's editor who ended up going back yeah, to Jeanine. um yeah janine then you think it's gonna be janine and then you think it's gonna be this hacker guy uh, Mc, uh mccoyle mcactivist right mccoyle with cashew cashew is yeah. a cashew became a favorite around my viewing party <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like Cashew too. We were, but, we were power ranking the characters about about three quarters of the way through the season, and Cashew was a was a very strong number one. <laughs> but like it, they they all seem to be like primed to like pick up this baton of like the like the fourth estate who's trying to put together the idea of where all this power is going from, and that ends up being this other reporter completely out of left field who really never. Uh, I mean, she does play an important role in some of the developments that really drive forward what eventually like how frank eventually sees his power but at the same time she's still like missing the bigger picture there which was what zoe and lucas and um these other characters were had a hand in um so it it was just it was just like a very weird 
set of uh the the all the characters in the trajectory of um Claire and Frank were just on these weird paths that either dove out of the show very quickly or just kind of kept repeating themselves over and over again or sometimes were just like elevated in strange ways that um seemed more for spectacle than it did for like out of any point of um narrative sense or thematic importance i i I think i'm gonna call out the uh the meacham development right there (laughs) you've talked you've talked about um the doug stamper plotline a couple times and that like second only to the cashew joke maybe actually i think this one came up more than the cashew joke uh the people i was watching it with we started we started referring to this as the no friends plotline like Doug just keeps showing up in Rachel's life being like, you can't have friends. No friends. Yeah. Like, I have one rule and it's no friends. And that's like, that's his plot like for 13 episodes. It's like, it is. He like pops up outside her window and he's like seething because she's got a friend. And then like, for a little while he's in the reader and he wants her to read to him. And like, I like Doug as a character, but this season he got reduced to just no friends. Um... Yeah, I think, and what, what, like, by the, by about the two-thirds mark of this season, I was actually, I know you don't watch the show, but this is the analogy that I keep running to in my head. Okay. I, I was thinking, I almost wish this was, like, The Good Wife, and Kevin Spacey was, like, Chris Noss' character on that show, and that, like, he would show up about half the time and have political things to do, but the rest of the show would be about Claire, who I think, like, emerged from being a great performance by Robin Wright and a useless character last season, to being, like, the heart of the show, um, I think the best episode of season two was episode four, which revolved around her uh, interview. Um, I thought that was like that was an episode that was the equivalent of last season's uh, Frank's trip to the military academy. It just in terms of like it gave us insight into the character, but it also felt like for a little while House of Cards was as good a show as it wants to be. Like that episode is one that I would consider like I'll think about when it comes to year end lists. I can't. I can't say it would make it because I think like it was a pretty solid episode of the show, but I still think maybe like a B plus episode of television. Um, yeah. But that episode blew me away. And I think like Claire actually had interesting things to do all season. And every time we cut back away from Claire and back to Frank, I was just like, I know what you're doing already. It's not interesting. They tried to make Raymond Tusk into a, some sort of adversary and it didn't work at all because at this point the show is so in Frank's corner that we all just know he's going to win. So, like, it's just basically, like, he's going to sit back, recline in his chair, and eventually he'll win, but he can't win until near the end of the season. I also think that the um, another problem there was just how non-entity and adversary uh, President Walker was. <laughs> um, it, uh, I'm sorry, I think someone just died upstairs in my apartment building. Um, that's not good, but we'll deal with that after the show. Yeah. Um, back to what I was saying. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, you, you have ostensibly two big antagonists in this, uh, season of the show, uh, Raymond Tusk and Garrett Walker, whose job Frank Underwood is going after. And time and time again, Garrett Walker realizes, hey, you're screwing me. Stop screwing me, and then just forgets about it like a few scenes later when Frank looks at me and says, "No, I'm not screwing you. Don't worry about it." It's it's really um, troubling when um, 
one of the adversaries of the show is sort of just always kind of off in the distance. You never really see them interacting that much. And the other one um, is just kind of a pushover. I mean, he's kind of a bland character to begin with. And then when you have him repeatedly sort of like suspect Frank, but then be like, oh, maybe I'm wrong about the guy. And that's really what leads to his downfall is his just like inability to go with this instinct and trust that like Frank is fucking him over when really just look at the bodies of in Frank's wake. Like it's not he's not a guy who's really covering his tracks all that well. I mean, this is not hard to put together for somebody who has essentially the political shrewdness to become president of the United States. I think you see this coming more than President Walker does, but he doesn't. He just stands in front of it like a freight train and just lets himself get run over. Well, I think, I think you're being charitable calling Walker an adversary, uh, and I think one of the mistakes the show makes is they paint him as such a pushover, and, like, that Raymond Tusk is the one pulling the strings, and that's, he's, you gotta get Raymond out of the way. But, like, the president, it has to be in a lot of the show, and the problem with Walker is he doesn't feel like a president in the least. Um, I think I, 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 I tweeted at some point while I was watching it, like, I don't believe this guy can be president. I don't believe that Walker could be, like, the chair of a faculty subcommittee. Like, he has no charisma. <laughs> he has no, like, he's not a character, but he's, yeah, there's just, like, there's nothing there. And, like, if the point was that he's a puppet, I guess that's okay. But it doesn't make for interesting television to watch, like, two people fight over puppet strings for 13 episodes. Um, yeah. While the puppet's like, I'm going to marriage counseling. Yeah. Um, I, no, no. President Walker is one of the least interesting aspects of this show, and just how uninteresting he is. And especially when you're saying what you're saying is absolutely true, where there seemed to be a bit of indecisiveness about who is the real antagonist for a while. Is it Walker or is it um, Tusk? Because like after a while, Tusk sort of um, becomes a, a puppet himself it's like they, they kind of like flip roles towards the end almost and it's like this battle between walker and uh um underwood and who gets to use tusk to flip on the other one first and it 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 it, it just doesn't really work um not neither really uh like walker is uninteresting and tusk just never really has the follow-through to really work as an actual antagonist for the show. Yeah, completely agreed. Um, I also think, like, he's easily walked past uh, Fitzgerald Grant on Scandal as my least favorite TV president, which, oh, like, yeah. I've, I've complained about... I, I like Scandal quite a lot, um, all things considered, but I think, like, Fitz is a whole of charisma at the center of that show that hurts a lot <laughs> yes, of what it's trying yeah. to do. And yet still, like, I would rather watch Fitz forever than watch Walker for, like, 10 minutes. Like, yeah. Fitz can, like, just drink in the shower for 45 minutes. I will care more <laughs> about that than Walker's giving the State of the Union. Like, when they showed him practicing the State of the Union, I was like, I'm falling asleep, and this is, the one, like, one of the landmark speeches of your career. Oh, I think, like, God. if they were trying to make the point that Walker's an ineffectual president, they, they didn't make it well enough, because it seemed like the show wanted us to think he was, like, sort of a puppet, but sort of an effectual president. Uh, and I didn't, like, I don't buy how they got this guy elected, much less that he's, like, at all leading the country. Um, or, like, leading a conversation. Like, yeah. <laughs> I just, I buy nothing about Walker as a character. I think that hurt the season. Um, yeah. We should probably wrap up now. We've, we've gone longer than we uh, usually like to. But final thoughts on House of Cards Season 2, Chris? 
Um, enjoyable for a day, but not something I'm ever really going to return to. I will watch season three because, as I've said again, it's... I, I think you said it be best at the beginning of the episode. It's something I like to do for one day a year, and after that, it's just something I'm kind of done with. Yeah, um, I think, like, I will forget most of the plot points. Also, another another thing we didn't really discuss, but I guess we won't go into it now. Uh, as I dug into season two, I realized, like, crap, I don't remember almost anything from season one. Like, we had to keep going, wait, who's that guy? Wait, what was that thing that happened? Uh, Netflix really needs to do a previously on before their seasons, because... House of Cards oh, does yeah. not stick in your memory. And, like... Well, the, the idea is you're supposed to marathon the first season and then marathon the right, second like the season. Right, sh like, the show was pretending that I remembered or cared about anything a year after I watched oh, yeah. it. And, like, I'm already starting to forget and not care about things that I watched less than 48 hours ago in season two. Um, it does not stick in the mind. And I'm okay with that, because I don't, like... Last season, I thought House of Cards was, like, a, a decent show. I'm gonna, I'm gonna downgrade it now and say, like, it's a not very good show. I think it's... It's actually a less entertaining, um, like a less entertaining version on the same level of quality as the newsroom right now. Like it's a show I'm gonna keep watching, but kind of begrudgingly, and yeah. mostly because I think like it does some things right sometimes, and like yeah, I think I like the newsroom better than I like House of Cards right now, and that's saying. Oh yeah, it's the new the newsroom is much more perversely fun than House of Cards though. Yeah, well, House of Cards, yeah, the the perverse fun is not as much fun as the newsroom's perverse fun. And, like, sometimes the newsroom gets something right. House of Cards, like, season two, it got some things very right, but I think it got a lot more wrong. And, like... Oh, yeah. It was just... This is this season is a minefield of plot lines I don't care about. Like, to the point where sometimes there was less than a quarter of an episode that I was interested in what was going on. Um, so, yeah, I've downgraded House of Cards in season two to, like, a not-very-good show. But I will still watch season three, and is shall this podcast still be a going concert in a year? I bet we'll talk about it. Um, <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> don't don't predict the death of the Review Name podcast on air, Chris. Don't do it. <laughs> We're gonna live forever, or at least okay. through House of Cards season three, which is not that like. Please let that not be the landmark for our show. Oh god. We'll just if we can just make it. To <laughs> if we can just get to HOC three cards to talk about oh. how we still don't like it. Yeah. Um. All right, well, with that, we should probably shut down the show. As always, you can follow us and our exploits at ReviewToBeNamed.com. You can follow us on Twitter at ReviewToBeNamed. You can email us at ReviewToBeNamed at gmail.com. Um, there are plenty of ways to contact us. Feel free to do it. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Tell us anything random. Um, tell us what your grandparents are eating for dinner. I don't really care. Uh, we'll listen. Um, with that, this has been the Review to Name podcast. I have been Jordan. And you know what? This one goes out to Cashew. That wasn't exactly...